Blossom Your Awesome Podcast, episode number 97. Today on the show, Myra Holzman is back with us. Myra is a somatic therapist who helps people heal from developmental trauma. I am so honored and delighted to have Myra here with us sharing her insights and wisdom. We are going to have a deeper conversation around childhood trauma, emotional neglect, and the importance of tending to the emotions of others. Myra, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks. It's great to be back and I appreciate the opportunity. It's so nice to chat with you some more. Oh, it was such a great conversation. So I want to take an even deeper dive with this because I feel like we were just kind of scratching the surface on some stuff here. So, um, you know, a little bit of a recap. So what we kind of started, um, we were talking about emotional neglect and the need to have our emotions tended to. So uh, can you kind of recap a little bit about, um, you know, this kind of lack of awareness around emotional neglect or seeing that as a form of abuse? Yeah, that is what, I'm sorry, there was just a little bit of a gap. So hopefully that doesn't happen again. Okay. Um, Yeah, that is what we were talking about. It was a, it was a really deep conversation. I appreciated the way that you showed up and were asking some really beautiful things. Yeah. So now, you know, talk to us about emotional neglect. Like, why is this so prevalent and why is it being overlooked? Why do we just in general tend to overlook this as something that really needs to be addressed? So I don't know if I mentioned this the last time that we chatted, but The vision of my practice, Somatic Therapy Partners here in Denver, is to end intergenerational trauma. And I I think that the reason why emotional neglect is so pervasive is because it's been taught to us through generation after generation after generation of not knowing what to do with emotions, emotions feeling like a huge burden to people because they don't have capacity in training. You know, I feel like only in the last 10 or 20 years or so is, for example, mindful parenting become a thing, meaning parents who are aware of their own issues and they don't want to bring those to bear with their own children. So, from my view of the world as a clinician focusing on working with early trauma and emotional neglect as one of those things, these are learned behaviors that date back, you know, five, seven, many generations beforehand. And so the clients that I work with are here to wake up, and I mean that in the best way, but wake up to the to a different way of having relationships with their kids. And I think that's why it's so pervasive because we're just not taught. I mean, there's no emotion regulation class that I ever took in high school or in college. And these days there's lots and lots of books out there for kids as young as two or three years old to start identifying what their emotions are. So in my view of things, it's a brand new experience actually attending to emotions in a meaningful and attuned way. Mm, Okay. And so what do you believe is attributing to this kind of waking up that's happening with, you know, I mean, breaking the cycle of intergenerational stuff we know is like, you know, that takes a minute to break away at that. But what's happening? How, like, why are people waking up? 
Well, I'll speak to it from a personal perspective, and then this is also informed with a lot of conversations that I have with my clients. So I think I shared in our last podcast, I grew up with parents who were deeply misattuned people, and they were also physically abusive. And I have a 14-year-old daughter, and the whole motivation and energy of my business and, and why I decided to wake up is because I didn't want to repeat the same patterns that were done to me. I didn't want to talk to my daughter always with a sense of contempt and hostility, which is the way that I grew up. And I want for when my daughter, when she gets older, to want to come home and visit me and her dad. That to me is one of the most important things. I saw this, I saw this really interesting quote I can't remember where I saw it, but this very wealthy man was talking about how he's like, what is the point of riches if your kids don't want to come home and see you during the holidays? And I remember just being super impacted about that. And I think that for those of us in the world who are seeking to be happier, to be more at peace and to be more conscious, part of this is driven by wanting to have better relationships with kids than they had with their own parents. At least that's what I keep hearing from the clients that I work with. They want to know how to not show up in these disempowering ways with their children because we all, I mean, for those of us that have experienced abuse or neglect, it doesn't feel good. And the stress in the body of being disempowered and tr being treated in an abusive or undignified way is, is the cost of doing business is just way too high. Mm, yeah. Wow. That is so powerful. Now, you know, for you personally, I mean, was there, so there's this physical abuse going on it, at a young age. Did it just very much feel like, okay, that was the trauma that was happening versus the emotional neglect also? Like did the physical kind of overpower So what I would say for me, and I, I also used to work with um, survivors of domestic violence, and this relates to what I'm about to share about my own life, but what they would tell me is that it wasn't the, the, the getting slapped or the getting hurt or the broken bones that stuck with them the most. It was the mean things that their partners would say to them that would constantly chip away at their sense of self-esteem. So for me, growing up in a home where my body wasn't physically safe, what I felt a lot of the time was fear. And that fear has a really strong gripping quality in the body, right? Over time, when the body can't, because gripping, and what I mean by gripping is we, the body has to brace when you're under threat. And if your body braces for long enough, it loses its ability to defend itself in some ways, and then it goes into collapse, right? So this is also sometimes known as learned helplessness. So the physical part was definitely very prominent, but what was more insidious than anything was the constant fear that I was living with at home of like, did I do it right enough? Did I say it the wrong way? Like, what's going to happen if I stand up for myself, if I ask for my needs to be met? And that the emotional piece is what dri what drives all behaviors for most people. You know, I can look back and see that my parents, and I talk about, I've been talking about this a lot lately, but my parents had no way to self-soothe. And so the way that they would soothe growing up is by discharging all of that anger, anger by hitting me or by doing something, right? And if you think about what, what discharge is, it's really about discharging energy. So fight, flight, one of the things is when you fight back, there's relief in fighting back. Your body can kind of settle down or if you get away successfully. And fight and flight are both high energy 
uh, motor program, so to speak, in the body where it's like you don't even have to think about it, but you're running away from the assailant or you're running away from the tiger. So they're they're not so separate and they're deeply intertwined, but the emotion part and then the patterning of that emotion in the body is what keeps people locked into these really damaging patterns in relationships, whether it's parent to child or in between spouses or sometimes even in between friends. Does that make sense, what I just shared? Um, It is. Can you elaborate on that a little? Because I'm sure there's so many different scenarios to this, right? Yeah, yeah. So there was a study, and I, I remember this in my training, but there was a there was a group of kids that got kidnapped and they were on a bus. And somehow one of the kids was able to get away and go get help. And I, I might be totally botching the history of this. And the other kids that were too scared and didn't do anything and, you know, either didn't fight back but sort of got stuck in, in frozen mode ended up having higher rates of symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. And so when I talk about motor programs, and this is from my training in somatic experiencing, every, every especially the big emotions. So fight has a motor program of I'm going to defend myself, right? I'm going to put up my fist. My face is going to get really tight. My eyes are going to bulge. I'm going to suck in my stomach. And then hormonally, what's happening is a bunch of cortisol and adrenaline gets shot into my my extremities so that I can run away and do things like this, right? So if you can't complete the motor program that goes along with threat, whether it's running away successfully or fighting back so that you are then out of danger and then you arrive in a safe place, then the idea is, is that that life force energy gets trapped in the body, Right? So imagine the high energy of anger or of fight getting trapped in your body. What that eventually will, will turn into is anxiety that doesn't have a uh, trigger that can be associated to it, right? Or a sense of like, I just need to avoid every conflict that comes because I didn't get to run away. So whenever my partner says something like, I don't agree with you, and I freeze and I shut down, it's a way that that energy or the, the pattern of that energy gets stuck in the body and then can't complete. So in somatic experiencing, we talk about the body needing to complete these motor programs so that the client's system can return back to its balanced state. So that's what I mean. I know it sounds kind of technical, and hopefully I unpacked it a little more, but it's basically the completion of behaviors that go along with the life-threatening situation so that the body doesn't have to keep holding the energy. Mm, Wow, that's interesting. So it's almost like... um the victim versus someone who fights back, right? It's like when you don't fight back, you're kind of uh, almost building this wall that's going to keep you a victim versus discharging that kind of, you know, flight or fight, right? That, then you're- that's right. Yep, exactly. And so the other thing I want to say about that, because What's also true is that for victims, let's say, of assault who didn't fight back, that's not necessarily something that they could have controlled because the freeze response is also just as important as fight or flight. So if a situation is so overwhelming that the victim didn't do anything and then they ended up getting hurt, even if they survived it, often those folks will feel an overwhelming sense of shame, guilt, and embarrassment because they didn't do something. And in working with those clients, part of what I try to unpack for them is, one, it's not your fault. 
Two, this was a physiological response to what was happening, and it's just what happened. And three, let's talk about the wisdom of freezing up, because in in uh, in the wild, right? When prey when prey is going after when predator is going after prey, if that gazelle freezes up and hides in the bush, then the idea is is that you won't get detected. Right. Mm -hmm. And so oftentimes when I'm working with clients who have had some kind of shock traumatic incident, meaning a a single incident where they were not able to harness the resources to get away or to do something. um, My job is to help them understand the wisdom of their body because it is not a controllable thing. Right. Because if they could have fought back, they would have, except for that that was just not available for whatever reason. And we can't identify the reasons why some people fight back, some people run away, and some people freeze up. It is literally just what happens. So in helping to process that trauma, we're not only discussing top-down things like what's the wisdom in freezing up, but also helping the client move through the actual somatic experience of what could they have done, right? Had there been resources or support, would what would they have liked to have done so that they didn't get trapped in this really, really threatening experience? And the whole process is a very is a very tender one because we all believe that we can control our bodies. And that's true most of the time, except for that when we can't. And when we're under a huge threat, we can't always control what happens. And then if people get hurt, what's really important is that they get support in order to help the body discharge all of that excess energy, but in little bits of time, like in titrated ways or in little bits, so that it doesn't become so overwhelming. That's why a lot of people don't do trauma work is because just even the thought of what happened sends them into overwhelm, panic, shut down, all of the kinds of things. They're like, nope, let's just ignore it. Except for that trauma tends to be a very cumulative kind of thing. It sort of builds up and builds up and builds up until the client is so depressed that they can't go to work or they're so anxious that they're socially isolated and they, they can't even see their friends or, you know, they're constantly defensive in their marriage with their partner and can't take feedback. Like it shows up in so many different ways. And that's why trauma is so insidious, especially early trauma. You know, we were talking about emotional neglect, but they don't have a diagnosis for that in the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual, which is the book that all clinicians use in order to diagnose diagnose people. There's no thing that's, there's not even a diagnosis for early trauma because the impacts of it are so wide ranging and show up in so many different ways. And in my opinion, my humble opinion, it's a disservice. It's a disservice to people who have experienced, whether it's emotional neglect or early abuse, because they don't have, they can't, nobody can make sense of it for them until someone like me or other clinicians who are trained say, Everything you're experiencing is a result of early trauma. Your nervous system is stuck in fight or flight, and it doesn't know how to get into this regulated rhythm. So I kind of went off, but I'll pause here. Wow, that was so much um, insight there. It's so fascinating because we don't uh, think of this. You know, we all just kind of have these assumptions that, okay, we're life is hard, stuff happens to all of us. And then you carry all of this baggage. And for some people, it's, um, wow. So how do, how does one in adult life, because I feel like a lot of people are carrying trauma and don't even realize, right? They're like, oh, that happened to me 30 years ago. And they don't even realize it's something that needs to be addressed. Yeah, agreed. 
I mean, the thing that gets people into my office and typically seeking out therapy is that they have a sense that things could be better. And they've tried a lot of things, especially the clients that I work with. My, my, generally speaking, the people that come to work with me have been in therapy anywhere from three years to 30 years. They've tried shamans, they've tried nutritionists, they've tried ayahuasca, they've gone to therapy, you know, all of these things. But it didn't really ever get to the root of it because a lot of therapy even now is still very top-down, meaning very mind-based. If you can focus on your thoughts and change your thoughts, then you'll feel better. And I think that that's barely even scratching the surface because what's really true is that if mind and body are one, right? So a lot of people talk about the mind-body connection, but what's true is that mind and body are one. So if your body is dysregulated, you know what's going to happen? It's going to feed your brain, your mind, all of these thoughts about how terrible of a person you are, and you're going to be feeling shame all of the time. Your self-worth is going to be in the tank. Just like if you do your healing, and I watch this all the time with my clients, we start doing some healing work, whether it's touch work or we're doing parts work or we're, you know, we're attending to specific emotions. And all of a sudden, what comes online is, one, is self-compassion, and two, is an ability to start looking at themselves in a, in a more positive light. And that's when I know that clients are starting to get regulated. So if you, you know, for the listeners, just even imagining that you could heal from something or being like, why is everybody else happy and I'm not? That question is actually a huge one. And if you can keep walking towards it, like, why is everybody, why does everybody seem happy and I'm not? It can lead you to looking at things that you might not even know are there because the level that I work at with clients is all subconscious and unconscious. 90% of what I do in my office is I touch my clients with co-regulating touch. And what I'm doing is working literally from the bottom up and support, supporting a sense of embodied safety. And talking is helpful. There's no doubt about it. But talking without a somatic experience is, again, only part of the issue. Like both, both pieces have to be in place. And there are, you know, I've done a lot of trainings in my life, and it's, it's a really tender and vulnerable path to take, but an important one, especially if you want more joy in your life. Mm, wow, this is just um, so amazing, Myra. Like this idea that, and I love that you bring up self compassion because it's not something I think we think about. And as victims, right, a lot of times there's self blame happening. Yes. Where it's kind of, it's your fault and it happened because you're a bad person or you did this or you said that and you deserve it versus, okay, that was an awful experience and I didn't deserve that. And then you there with the co-regulating touch, which I can only imagine just helps them connect in a human way, right? Is this, this is what's happening versus sitting there and evoking emotion on them, you know, by themselves, they've kind of got you there supporting that feeling to arise and awaken. and Yeah. And I mean, you know, one thing I tell my clients all the time, especially when they first begin, is the first of the five senses that develops, and I may have said this on your last podcast, is touch. And we live in a society that is so touch taboo, right? I mean, in therapy, I remember when I started telling some of my colleagues that I was learning to like therapeutically touch my clients and they would say the right things and nod their head and smile. But inside I was, I'm like, yeah, they think this is nuts. They don't, it is just so taboo. And so if the first sense that we develop is touch 
and they're experiencing something really hard and I'm gently with them holding their kidney or like gently cradling their skull, which are the two places that I usually start. And they get to feel an actual sense of care, support, physical contact that's actually safe, that it really rewires the whole system. Because especially with early trauma and neglect, what is not embodied is a sense of safety, right? Safety is not a thing that you can, I know that people do this, and I talk to clients about this. A lot of people try to over control their lives, and I say that without judgment, right? Like they eat this on Monday, they eat this on Tuesdays, they've got to start their morning in this way by meditating, and they've got to think all of these thoughts in order to feel safe in the world. But what's true is that when you have an embodied sense of safety, you actually don't need to work that hard to maintain that sense of safety and resilience. And that's a, that's a really big statement that I'm saying, and we can unpack it more. But something I tell people all the time is, you know, your job is not to be trying to self-regulate all day, every day. If what I believe is true, which is that the body knows how to be regulated, then what I have to do is really trust the body to come back into the rhythm of regulation so that you're not having to like think good thoughts all the time and tell yourself that you're worthy and, you know, take long, deep breaths. Like those are important skills to have. And as people heal, they need them less and less because their body will just return them back into what's called the window of tolerance where they're just steady and in flow with their life. And that to me is a thing I, I don't see that talked about a lot in social media or, you know, in a lot of things that I follow because I follow a lot of personal growth um, blogs as well as sites. And everyone's talking about these awesome self-regulation skills. But the truth of it is, is that you're not meant to be doing that all the time because it's still effort. It's a lot of effort to breathe a certain way. It's a lot of effort to like think good thoughts and calm yourself down and all of the things that we do just to you know, get through our days, right? But when the body heals, then you don't have to do that stuff as much. And I think that's really important to stay, to say. Mm, wow. I love that. So talk to us more about this, this, um, I think you called it, uh, the embodied sense of, uh, safety, right? Is that what it? Yeah. Is? Yeah. So I'll give you some examples from my practice. And these were, see, these were some of the most, I'll give you the one that is the most poignant. So, I had a client come in. It was probably her, I think it was her second session. And often the first session when I do body work with clients, there's a fair amount of bracing or resistance because it's weird to have someone hold your kidneys that you just met while you're talking about really hard things. So she comes in for her, her second session and she's actually a very gifted body worker herself. She does massage and works with athletes. And she came up and she had gotten into a really deep rest state during the session and she sat up and she was a little bit, you know, um, not dizzy, but just a little bit out of it. And, you know, I have them sit up slowly and orient into the room by looking around after we're done. And she's sitting there. We're both sitting there quietly. And I said, how are you doing? And she kind of paused and I could see her sort of checking in with her body. And then all of a sudden she started crying. She started like really like sort of feeling afraid a little bit. And I said, I'm right here with you. What's happening? And she said, what's happening in my body right now? And I said, what do you mean? She's like, I don't understand this feeling. And I said, well, you know, you nearly fell asleep and you looked pretty calm up until the time that I asked you what was happening. And I kind of wonder if maybe you just don't really know or you haven't really experienced a deep sense of calm, ease, or peace. And it was like a light bulb went off. And she's like, 
that's what this is. I mean, I like I remember started crying as well because it was so profound that she had because she was a very anxious client. That's one of the um, populations that I or issues that I specialize in, and she really had no idea that you could just really be so at ease that all of your muscles and your fascia could settle, and your mind could operate in this slow, easy, steady way and have space in there. And she was pretty hooked after that. I said, yeah, I think what you're experiencing is a lot of calm and it's okay. It's new. Your brain's probably freaking out because it hasn't been there. And again, this was a client who had experienced early and consistent trauma with a parent of hers who was highly critical and also very threatening um, in his behaviors towards her when she was young. And so we just kept working it out. And so part of an embodied sense of safety is a sense of calm that you don't have to work for, right? It's like being calm as well as well as being alert at the same time versus being hypervigilant, right? Like constantly scanning your environment and feeling really braced and tense in your body or feeling totally shut down and numb where you can't hardly feel anything. So that session, that second session landed her right in the window of tolerance where her system could be like, oh, activation, settling activation settling that that's one of the best examples that I give when it when it comes to an embodied sense of safety and so we kept working on that pattern right and the other way that I know when clients have a greater sense of regulation is when they get mad at me now it, it sounds funny to say that but they're only going to get mad with like at someone who they feel safe with generally speaking unless they're so dysregulated and you know the other option is that they're in fight all of the time and they're getting mad at everyone but for a lot of my clients because especially with neglect there's a lot of people pleasing that happens people pleasing is a way of getting needs met if i meet your needs then hopefully you will meet my needs right it's one of the simplest ways that i talk about it but when a client can get angry with me and say, I was really mad that you didn't call me back or, you know, you said something and it hurt my feelings. It's one of the signs that I know that they are feeling more regulated because they have enough safety to come forward when I know that they are people pleasers in all the other places in their lives and confront me and say, this is what happened. I didn't like it. Right. So there's a lot of these, there's a lot of these little, they're not little, but there are a lot of these examples that I can give and that I'm always looking for. And self-compassion is another way that I know clients are getting regulated, right? One of the things I do is I listen to the narrative as clients are talking because, you know, my clients, of course, talk when they come into session. And I'm listening for where they're kind to themselves, where they congratulate themselves for something positive, where they can recognize, oh my God, I did that different and it felt so much better, right? When their narrative starts to get peppered with all of these positive things, I'm like, okay, here we are. We're moving into the regulation zone, and it is awesome. Mm, wow, that is beautiful. I love that, and I love it. It just sounds really amazing, Myra. Your whole approach and this kind of deeper sense of awareness around, um, you know, what they're feeling without them even having to kind of convey that, right? Having, yeah you through your own work, your own spiritual work and all of that, having that deeper awareness where it's like, okay, this is kind of what's going on here. And how do I get them to relax into sharing? Yeah. My training has been a huge gift to me. And I don't, I can't remember if I said this last time, but you know, given the way that I grew up, I personally had to go to school to become a therapist and take all these trainings in order to learn empathy because it was not wired into my system. It was not role modeled for me that if I make a mistake, I will still be welcomed back into my family, 
right? Versus being treated with contempt and shunned with silence and, you know, told that I'm being ridiculous and stop being so sensitive, right? So I had to, I mean, this is a hard one and I'm proud of it. I have worked hard to be the clinician that I am and to learn empathy in such a way that it is much more empathy and compassion in such a way that it's much more available available to me now than it ever has been before. And again, without ego, I say this, but I feel like that's what makes me a really good clinician is because I've walked the path that a lot of my clients that walk through the door are currently walking. So I know, I'm not saying I know them through and through and I know more than them, but I know what it is to walk the path, for example, from like self-hatred and being hard on yourself to like deep care, deep love and the experience of joy in this very unbridled way. Mm, That is beautiful. And How has this, on a side note, I want to get back to some more of this kind of clinical stuff here, but for you personally, how healing has it been to learn this and now help facilitate the healing of others? It must be so amazing. I mean, it's everything, Sue. It's like, it is... Like there's no even words to describe it, but I'll tell you what I did. This happened about six six or eight months ago. <clears throat> I decided to write a letter to my two teachers, Kathy Kane and Stephen Terrell. And I was basically extolling the virtues of the training that I had received from them. And one of the things I said to them was like, you know, whether you meant to do this or not, and I'm sure that you didn't mean to do it, you two together replaced you guys are like the ideal parents that I never had. And because of the way that you teach and because of the things that you have taught me that I can do with my clients, I feel like I have really healed from all of my early trauma. And, you know, just to go even a little bit further to talk about attachment style. So the hardest, the hardest attachment style to work with is something called disorganized attachment. And you know, it used to be that I would feel ashamed to identify that way because it meant that really bad things happen pretty consistently in your early life. And that's what I was dealing with for a lot of my life is a lot of disorganized attachment. And so cut to the chase today, the training has really allowed me to move from disorganized attachment styles to anxious attachment and then now to something that's called earned secure attachment, meaning that I have practiced enough, I've done enough healing, I've practiced enough safe enough uh, dynamics in relationships that I have, I can now much more easily flow and pivot with things that used to be super huge triggers for me. So when you ask that question, and I really appreciate that, like I feel my whole chest like warm up and expand because there's nothing that I would trade for the things that I've learned and also the things that I get to do with my clients because it is everything. I mean, the joy that I get to experience, the richness of my life, the the sanctity and gorgeousness of my relationship with my husband and my daughter, you know, all the way to the business business success that I've experienced. That's what regulation gets you, in my opinion, if you've had, you know, if you didn't have it in your early life. So for anyone that's listening out there, and I say this without being self-deprecating, but like if I can heal, you can too. There's, I'm not special in that way. And it does, it requires commitment, it requires consistency, and it requires that, you know, just that desire for things to start feeling better, even just a little bit. Mm, Wow, that is so beautiful, Myra. And I think, uh, you know, and I can only imagine with, you know, the fulfilling uh, feelings that you get from working and helping other people heal and 
it's so incredible. And I just commend you, God, I'm getting the chills that you're completely just whole from your own training and now the work you're doing. And it's kind of like a a bonus, like, because every time you help heal somebody, it's got to be such an amazing, beautiful affirmation that you're healed and you're whole. Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the things that I do is I, I train and mentor other clinicians and I always say this and it's a really good thing, but you can only take clients as far as you've gone yourself. I, I believe that wholeheartedly. And that's not to say that if you're just on your healing journey and you're a clinician or a healer or whatever, that you can't help people along. And what I believe is that you got to really do your work. If you want to have impact in the world in the ways that are the most meaningful to you, especially as a provider, man, it's really important for you to dive right in and get there. Right. Not that there's a stopping point. I mean, there's always, in my opinion, there's always work to be done. There's always a refinement or, you know, a more sensitive attunement to myself and to other people in relationship. But yeah, it is, it's profound. I mean, when I when I found co-regulating touch as an approach, I landed fully in my purpose in ways that I had not even anticipated was even available for me. And that landing in my purpose continues to like feed and nourish my soul and my business. It's why our business is so successful. It's why my clients can really transform and heal their nervous systems, right? And part of it too is because I love my clients unabashedly. And I know, you know, for any therapist that might be listening, that's a big no-no in our fields. You know, you're supposed to have boundaries. And, and I do. I have really good boundaries. But I'm also really clear about loving my clients so that they can heal as well. And if I put too much of a barrier in between me and them, and I mean this in the best, most appropriate, healthy ways, then it makes it harder for someone because people want to know that you're with them when they're struggling. They want to know that you're going to be with them when things get really hard and they want to, and they don't want to work with you anymore. They want to stop because things get really scary. So that together experience, that with and that we experience is so much another part of an embodied sense of safety, right? It's like, yeah, I feel like you're really with me when I'm struggling. I've had clients say that to me a thousand times and I'm like, because I am, I'm right here with you. I don't have to have the answer. I don't have to fix you. I don't have to understand everything that's going on. But for someone who is in deep struggle to know that, that they're not alone in it, it's, it's the biggest, it's the jam. Wow. That is so, (laughs) so powerful. And, you know, I'm just envisioning you like I, so I'm a very touchy feely person and sometimes, and I know, you know, most people are just not, and I will, you know, I could meet you and be like, you know, grabbing your arm like all night long as we're getting to know each other. But, you know, of course, not in, a, in an aggressive way, but just in a touch and uh, way. Yeah. And the sense of connection that you're uh, creating here, like, it's so amazing to me because to me, it's like the most powerful thing, human connection. And yes. I don't think we're getting enough of that. So for you, like, what is that like for you to be able, like on a human level, right? You've got to be really comfortable with yourself to be able to do this, but it's also got to be feeding your soul and spirit in some way where you're able to kind of deeply connect and just like touch someone physically out of love and care. Yeah. yeah. I really appreciate the 
<clears throat> the essence or energy of this question. So one of the things that I've really been obsessed with in the last uh, two years um, is the uh, is what's called soul alignment. And I've been doing this new thing that's been happening probably for the last six months because I've been really sort of exploring soul and meditating more and just a bunch of things to help me operate less from ego and more from soul. And I always talk about soul and point to my chest um, because there's a structure in your chest called the mediastinum, which my teacher talks about. If there was a physical structure for the soul, it would be the mediastinum. And where was I going to go with this? So the thing that I've been doing with clients when I touch them is that I first, in my heart space and in my mind, I greet them for, as one soul to another versus like, here's a client whose body is dysregulated and I'm coming in and doing this nervous system and I'm holding their kidney and, you know, like all of the things that I was trained to do. But for me, it, it adds this, this deepening, more intimate element where it's like, I know the truth of who you are, which, is, and I don't mean that in a, like, I know everything kind of way, but like, you're a soul, I'm a soul, and we're two souls just connecting and being in the same space. And I don't know, uh, what I feel like is that that has sort of changed the game. Like, I feel like my work has deepened even more so in the last six months, and clients are feeling really supported in that way. And it is, it's powerful to touch another with the intention of loving them and supporting the healing process. And, you know, when you were talking about like, yeah, we could get together and you would grab my arm and I totally get it. And when we touch people with intention, an intention to love, right, that is transformative more than anything else in the world. There's actually, I think I talked about this last time, but there have been studies that show that people recover better from surgery when they're being prayed for. And this is from a distance. They're not even getting touched. I, I should look up the name of the study. But intention and the intention for love and healing is massive, right? And then we're, we're working at a level that's not just physical, right? We're working on an energetic plane and we're working on a spiritual plane where, because my belief is that we're all these little drops of water in this greater consciousness, right, called greater consciousness. And soul is part of that. And so when I'm touching my clients, there's always intention. There's always spirit. Uh, uh, involved and soul alignment, because what I have found is that that super grounds me to be present, right? So that I can have those energetic boundaries where here's your stuff, here's my stuff, we're here together, and I don't have to take on anything that's happened for you, because that's one of the risks and hazards of doing work when you touch clients therapeutically. Mm, wow, this is so amazing, Myra. And I think it just um, so resonates for me because it's beyond just the clinical. And like you say, it's not you're meeting them down here. You're kind of showing up like soul, spirit, all of you yeah. and helping, you know, raise that vibration by That's just right. creating that connection. That's so powerful. I love that. Yeah. Now, um, you know, what is it? with people who, why are so many people so guarded when it comes to touch? What's your understanding of this? Well, my first answer to that is that we live in America. So we live in an American culture that is very taboo when it comes to touch. So apparently there's some study that talks about, um, how often people touch each other in certain cultures. So for example, in Filipino culture, men often will walk down the street with their arms around each other or around their waist or holding hands. And it's not because of anything else, but just like camaraderie and connection. 
in America, it's really hard to, it would be really hard to do that, whether you are, you know, LGBTQIA or straight men, for example, do not touch each other. So I think that we have this conditioning here in America where touch is bad. On top of the fact that for a lot of people, whether they know it or not, when they have been touched, it has been done without their consent and or there has been a power dynamic where they have been disempowered and abused as a result of it. And so all of that sort of, you know, the collective consciousness around touch in the United States, as well as what people have actually experienced in their lifetime, I think contributes to even the reason why clinicians are like, I, I don't want to do this. I remember attending the final year of my training in somatic experiencing, and it was all about touch. And half of the room of trained clinicians, PhDs, LCSWs, L, you know, um, LPCs, got really freaked out about it. Like they were like, oh, I can't do this. I'm not going to touch my client. This just feels too, you know, unethical, et cetera, et cetera. And it's just, it's a, it's a, it's counter, it's counterculture to want to touch people with intention and with care. So that's my best answer that I can give you. And I, I think it's a really rough thing. I mean, and by the way, on that scale where they scaled everybody about, you know, all the countries, America came in, I think, dead last or second to last about they, we were the highest, we were the, one of the most touch deprived societies in the entire world. Hmm. That's something that's, that's something. <laughs> wow. And now you know, what about some practical guidance um, here for people? I asked you something similar, but uh, before, but just some practical guidance here for someone who's like stuck or in, you know, kind of needing to break free of something. Yeah. Well, if we're, if we're talking about where I went with your question is how people might start to use intentional self-contact or self-touch in order to be soothed, right? Yeah. So the example that I always give is often clients will come in and they'll be wagging their foot or they'll be twirling their hair or they'll just sort of like be doing some kind of fidgety thing, right? And always, almost always the way that I read that is that those actions are being taken as a way to self-soothe. So what I will say to clients is, hey, did you notice that you're wagging your foot? And then they'll immediately stop. And I'll say, no, no, I don't need you to stop. But what I want you to notice is if you started to wag your foot again, when you wag your foot up and down, does it feel good? And if it feels good, can you let it feel good? Right? I'll give you another example. So I went to graduate school and I used to always sit next to my friend and she would sit there and paste her bangs across her hair. And I asked her, I was like, why do you do that? She's like, oh, I didn't even know I did that. And I was like, yeah, you do it. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't know any of this stuff at the time. And I was like, yeah, just notice the next time we take a test, like you're going to be pasting your bangs against your hair. And she came back after our next test and she's like, when I do that, it helps me feel less stressed out. But because we do these unconscious behaviors like fiddling with things or twirling our hair or wagging our foot, we don't actually feel that the body is trying to get regulated and to settle down. So for folks that are listening there are ways that you can take behaviors that you know that you already do and just simply send your attention to it and notice if, you know, when you're sort of squeezing your hand like this in a meeting underneath the table, can you let it feel good? And if it feels good, keep letting it feel good. And then the other thing I invite people to do is like just slow down the motion a little bit, like slow down the, you know, the gripping of the hand 
And notice what comes up for you when you do that. Because when we're moving unconsciously in those ways, it's a way of not feeling the thing that's there, whether it's, you know, feeling anxious, feeling inadequate, not feeling heard, not feeling important, whatever the situation is. Um, and then there's other ways to do like really helpful forms of self-contact. So I often guide clients through like gently holding their head, right? So like when I'm really under great states of stress, and my family will tell you this, I'll just gently squeeze my head together. It's the just right amount of contact because when we get really stressed out, our skull bones actually contract inwards. Everything gets really tense because the fascia that covers all over our skull and over our face bones, over the inside of everything – Fascia is like a cloth and imagine cloth starting to grip really, 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 really tight. And so when I'm just like gently applying pressure to the front and back of my head or to the side, or I'll often hold my face, it's a way of just helping everything settle down so that those structures that are keeping everything constricted can release. And I don't have to feel quite so tense and quite so uptight. Mm. That is awesome. Practical <laughs> guidance. We're all going to have to try that. I know I should do when I'm like, oh my God, okay. <laughs> I got to just hold my head for a second. So I can yeah. Know that one well. Um, now, you know, what for someone who, what do people need to hear who are like afraid of addressing? their trauma, if they're kind of arriving at a point where it's like, I need, I got to go deal with this. Yeah. On the fence. What's, what's your practical advice for them? Well, the first thing I would say for anyone thinking about it is thank you for just even considering it because it's huge bravery and courage to just consider doing something different than what you've been doing every single day to survive. And then the next piece of advice that I would give, and of course, this is my bent as a somatically trained clinician, but if you're going to work on your trauma, look for someone who has somatic training because it is not enough to just change your thoughts. If you could have already changed your thoughts about what happened and how you feel about it, you would have. A thousand percent, you would have already changed it just by using top-down strategies like cognitive behavioral therapy or affirmations or positive self-talk. So my advice would be to look for a somatically trained clinician who offers a free consultation so that you can get a feel for what it's like when you talk with them. It's really important that from the get-go that you begin, from the time that they call you back and you have your consultation with them, that you have a sense of exhaling, like, okay, not only do they know what they're doing and they're somatically trained, but I, I feel comfortable enough to want to go into his or her office and start doing this work because it's important. You do, you do, clients do the best work when they feel safe enough, cared for, and seen from the beginning of the therapeutic relationship, which starts at the phone, which starts at the phone call. Mm. Now, Myra, you do realize if you were in the Bay Area, I would be like knocking on your door and having I would you watch it to come. My head and my kidneys and my back. <laughs> <laughs> Because it just sounds so amazing. I mean, I've been to therapy over the years, nothing recently. I think I'm kind of, you know, pretty well grounded at this stage, but it just yeah. sounds like it would be so healing and therapeutic just to, even if you didn't have anything like that you needed to address right now, just to yeah. like, you know, yeah, it's amazing. So um, when you move your practice to the West Coast or... <laughs> <laughs> a session with you or what? But 
Well, I'll reach out to you the next time in the Bay Area because we actually go there pretty often. And then I can like give you a session and you can check it out and see what it feels like. Because honestly, like as many people as I can introduce this work to, I want to because it has been revolutionary and revelatory in my own life. Right. And I, I, you know, I've heard recently we teach what we most need to learn. There's parts of me that still needs to learn this compassion, empathy, self-care, self-love, all of those things. And it's why I'm so dedicated to the work that I do, because I have seen miraculous shifts in my clients that engage in the touch work more so than any kind of talk therapy that I've ever engaged in with clients. Wow. I love it. And so I cannot believe we have been chatting it up and you've just been dropping all of these knowledge bombs again, <laughs> one after the other. And it all has been so amazing. So first of all, and then again, Myra, like I want to do this again and again, I want to. you might have to be like the regular, like, you know, quarterly person, You're you know, one of your guests. I would love yeah. it. Yeah, our featured <laughs> guest, Myra, is back with more amazing love bombs. I just love it, love it, love it. So thank you. Yeah, I just want to say thank you so much for your time. You've been so awesome again, so insightful. It's such a pleasure to be with you, Sue. And I love your enthusiasm. And you just let me know what you need. Maybe we need to run retreats together or do a live Q&A or something like that. Like, I love talking about this stuff. I feel like I'm, you know, in a loving way trying to proselytize everyone to get loving, connected, therapeutic touch because it helps everyone for whatever it is that ails them, in my opinion. So thank oh, you. I love that. Like we, are we going to have like the first, like what's going to become an annual, like hug off or something where we get like <laughs> literally like people from end to end all like hugging and touching and squeezing each other. Wouldn't that, that be amazing? That would be amazing. Can you imagine a big like hug chain? A hug fest? Yeah. It would be everything. Oh, I love it. That sounds amazing. So I would, yeah, we're going to talk more about all of this, but in closing again, what is that message you want to leave us with today? My message would be that you deserve to get the care that's going to help you heal. 10,000%. You deserve to get the care that's going to help you heal. Yeah, I'll leave it at that. I love that, Myra. You are so awesome. Thank you so much. You are so awesome. Thank you, Sue. Thank you.